Hello and welcome back to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation. I'm your host, Annabelle Bly. You're listening to the third episode of our mini-series, Medicine Made for You. A deep dive into the future of healthcare and how it could soon get a lot more personal. In our first episode, we looked at precision medicine, the targeting of treatment for certain diseases based on our DNA. And then in the second episode, we looked at our diets and just how personalised nutritional advice might become. In this final episode of the series, we're exploring how treatments offered by your doctor could become more tailored to you in the future. We'll hear how algorithms could decide who to invite for cancer screening scans and about the growth of something called social prescribing. Here with me in the studio is our producer, Gemma Ware. Hi, Annabelle. So, Gemma, what have you got for us this week? Have you seen one of these before? Uh, no, I haven't. So this is a pill organiser, or also known as a dosset box. So it's a plastic container that's got lots of different compartments, one for each day of the week, essentially. And the idea is that if you had lots of drugs that you had to take every day, it would help you to do that. Oh, yeah. I know someone who had something similar, but that looked more like an advent calendar. Yeah, my grandma had one too, but it was actually a lot more complicated than this one. So I wanted to know what goes into making one of these up. So I went to a pharmacy in central London to find out. My name's Paddy Patel and I'm the pharmacist at Holborn Pharmacy. Can you explain to me and maybe show me what a dosset box looks like? Here's one I prepared earlier. (laughs) So dosset boxes are used for when a patient doesn't have the ability to know when to take their tablets. Maybe carers have to come in and give them their medication. Carers will not give it out the box. It has to be pre-prepared. And what goes into making one? What goes into making there's a lot of time involved. You have to punch out the tablets. You have to put them in order of morning, evening, afternoon, whichever dosing it is. At the same time, you have to label it with all the colours and what they look like in case you have to identify them. A lot of these patients have a change of dose maybe within the month you may have to redo the dosset box you also have to provide the leaflets that come in the each prescription item so they're aware of what's in there so there's quite a bit involved so can you show me this one yeah i'll show you this one so this is for a patient who's on 10 items fortunately he only has morning and evening dosing so morning and evening morning and evening and each one of them's got ooh. Up to eight or nine? Yeah, ten. So you got in, in total he has ten tablets, probably taking something in the region of ten, eleven, eleven tablets a day. And so every morning do you have to do your preparations of these? These are when they're needed. Each one has is on a different schedule. They're done at different times, so you, you maybe have two or three a day to do, depending on um, how, many, how many patients you have on dosset boxes. Well, it sounds like a really laborious task. Is there another way? Well, you know, some researchers are trying to find another way, and it's actually using 3D printing. But before we get to that and the technology of the future, I need to take you on a journey that starts about 100 years ago. Back in the Victorian period, if you walked into a pharmacy, you'd probably have been greeted by rows of high shelves lined with large glass bottles. And all these bottles would contain individual powders and elements and then they'd be mixed together for a personalised compounded medicine. This is Rob Forbes, Professor of Clinical Pharmaceutics in the School of Pharmacy and Biomedical Sciences at the University of Central Lancashire. So they were mainly uh, creams, ointments, 
solutions and suspensions. Occasionally, somebody you'd go into the pharmacy and say, I've got a cough. The pharmacist would go into the back and make something up, you know, a special cough medicine for you. You'd feel it was a bit more personalised. Then there's the, the mind-body psychology. Uh, you'd probably think it'd do you good. And there was an element of that it would do you good because <laughs> you were special and you got something special. But today, that's all changed. Since the advent of antibiotics and modern medicine, so to speak, industry makes all our medicines for us and we do very little personalisation. But we're all individuals, there's 7 billion individuals on the planet and to a greater or lesser extent, we'll all handle medicines differently. Of course, the production of medicines by pharmaceutical companies is now highly regulated. But as we heard in part one of this series... Many of the drugs in use today are designed for a standard or average patient. That high regulation means that there's only certain doses that are available and that can cause problems when we want to individualise patient uh, doses, particularly children and the elderly when we want to tailor doses when bodily functions are slightly different to the standard patients. Rob is currently researching ways to give children specific doses of a drug in a way that they'll find palatable. So we've got these standard doses and that's fine for the majority of the population they've been proven as safe and and effective but we need to find safe and effective medicines for children populations and they're not necessarily always developed by uh, the pharmaceutical industry and we have to resort to perhaps halving tablets quartering tablets uh, maybe even an eighth of a tablet. So if you can imagine you've got, I don't know, your, your love heart or your palmer violet or your swizzle, you know, and you've got to try and cut that into quarters and then administer a quarter of that to a, a child. That's quite a different challenge. And so we want to be getting to a place where we can 3D print an appropriate dose for that specific age-related medicine. So how does it work? Okay, well, if we keep on the sweet analogy, imagine you've got a a roll of licorice and um, you've got different flavours of licorice and you want to take that long roll of licorice and you are trying to print uh, an appropriate amount of that licorice that contains the dose that you need for that particular patient. So it's effectively an extrusion process where we have our licorice roll and we're squeezing that under high temperature and it melts and then becomes more fluid so that means it can flow and then we can using nozzles print an appropriate uh, dose and shape of the medicine that we're interested in. Rob has teamed up with the Paediatric Medicines Research Unit at Alderhey Children's Hospital in Liverpool in a project looking at how 3D printing of drugs for kids might work. The initial study is to see how they feel. So what we do is an acceptability study. There's no point in making lots of 3D printed medicines if nobody's going to swallow them, if the children aren't going to take them. And so initially, our initial study is to print these tablets without any drugs, so they're sort of placebo. And then following on from that, when we've adapted our designs, the next stage is to put medicines into the tablet. The technology behind this 3D printing of drugs could have other applications beyond paediatric medicine. For example, it could be used to get rid of those dosset or daily pill boxes. If we take the licorice analogy, we can create licorice all sorts with different layers and in each of those layers there'll be a different drug. So in one pill we could have 
three or four medicines. So then all you need to do is remember to take that particular medicine. I mean, it sounds, it sounds fascinating. So you could go into a hospital or even your local pharmacy, could you? And they, you hand them over your prescription and they would have a printer? Is that how you see it developing? Well, I think we're a long way from, from, from that, but it is a definite possibility. Um, you know, we're in this era of monitored me. There may be diagnostics uh, devices that we're walking around with and um, information on our bodily functions is being fed uh, automatically to some computer and then at a certain time that uh, information is uh, analysed and you know we know that you've not got an infection, you don't need this individual drug, uh, you're responding to this so we can lower the dose uh, and then you would get your medicines printed for the week or the month, and that would give you personalised, individualised tablets. Other researchers are working on the technical aspects of how a time-release polypill with multiple medications would work in practice. One way would be for the pill to have different layers of soluble membrane within it that would dissolve at different rates so that sections containing certain drugs could be released at different times of the day. Rob admits that there are also some ethical and practical issues involved in the 3D printing of drugs. Obviously, medicines are not sweets and uh, they're highly regulated. So we have a job of confirming to the regulator that these things can be done in an appropriate, safe manner. And that when we're printing these tailored medicines, there are issues around cleaning uh, so that we don't get contamination of one person's drugs with another person's drugs. If the 3D printing of drugs for individuals went mainstream... Rob says it could disrupt the pharmaceutical industry. Mass-produced drugs, such as paracetamol, currently start off as a powder, which is then compressed to make a tablet. The advantages of the existing process is that you can rapidly produce lots of tablets relatively cheaply, and that's why paracetamol is relatively cheap. But for niche populations or for challenging clinical situations, we may need to take this more bespoke approach, and there would be some added value and that would be appropriate. Around 5% of hospital admissions are estimated to be due to medicines, either people not taking the right amount, taking too much, or just a gap in communication. I think if somebody does the cost-to-benefit analysis and that the numbers uh, work out that actually you know, we can save hospital admissions, we can stop people being made ill by the medicines they take, or we can make people be better by taking the appropriate dose... And if that analysis works out, then I think this personalisation approach will become more and more commonplace. I asked Pradeep, the pharmacist we heard from earlier, what he thought about 3D printing of drugs. He liked the idea, but said there would be some practical challenges to implementing it. The idea is good. I don't think it would work for the NHS. There are a lot of complications. I'm going to show you something which I don't think people have really thought about. So two of the ingredients in there. One's called levothyroxine, which is for thyroid. Now that tablet contains six ingredients. There's another product called metformin, which is for diabetes. This product contains 14 items per tablet. So where do you draw the line in making that tablet? How long will that tablet last, a polypill? Like these will last something up to a year. Will that last long enough? Can you put it into a box where you're dispensing? I think it might be a specialist thing, where it may be like design a polypills for the private sector that's where it may start off for the nhs to be able to afford something like this the pharma companies are too strong if you look at africa and asia now to help compliance a lot of companies make polypills 
So you have three pills with a diuretic and two for blood pressure. But we don't use that system here because it's cheaper for the National Health to give individually. Polypills cost a lot more to manufacture. So you can't see that in, say, your or my lifetime, you're going to have a 3D printer in this? Not in, in my grandchildren's world. lifetime. <laughs> I asked another researcher focused on personalisation in medicine what he envisages the future to look like in the next 10 to 20 years. So I could see a greater move towards self-led health management, so where we move away from focusing on illness to focusing on maintaining health and monitoring our health risks. This is Mike Messenger, Head of Personalised Medicine and Healthcare at the University of Leeds. So each individual will have maybe a live dashboard of what their current greatest health risks are and they will then be able to work with healthcare professionals or other you know, private providers, fitness companies, nutrition companies to maintain their health and to drive down their areas of greatest risk. And that same sort of dashboard approach will then be available to clinicians and other healthcare professionals so when they do become unwell in addition to focusing on the symptoms that they present with, they can also take into consideration other risk factors or other sources of information that might inform that particular treatment decision. If you've listened to part one of this series, you'll remember my colleague Holly's trip up to the University of Glasgow, where she found out about research into precision medicine, the use of DNA analysis to find out which drugs will work best in people with particular genetic markers. Mike's research centre at Leeds comes at the question from a slightly different angle. So rather than focusing on, on the drug or the molecule and trying to find people who are going to respond to our drug or our molecule, we're focusing on the individual and trying to find the most effective diagnosis and treatment options for that individual considering their whole person circumstances. So not just their biomedicine, but also their whole psychosocial world. And a really good example of this is... Um, a piece of research that we're doing at the moment with a company called Myriad Genetics where we're evaluating their Prolaris test in our populations. And this is a prognostic molecular test that looks at patients with prostate cancer and helps them to decide whether or not to have treatment depending on whether they're high risk or low risk. And we had a really good case through last week where there was a patient who came out as having a, a high intermediate risk of having prostate cancer, which most of the time in the UK patients might opt to have surgery with. But they had their uh, Prolaris test done at the same time, and that came out and said that they had a low-risk cancer. Mike says that the patient had other health conditions that they believed needed treatment more urgently. It helped them to say, well, I'm not going to have surgery for that this week. I'll go on to active surveillance, I'll source out my other problems and then I'll come back and have my prostate looked at if it develops any further. The goal here is to give GPs the right tools to provide patients with more information about their own condition and then make the choice that's appropriate for them. In some cases, like this one, it could mean delaying treatment. But in others, the tools could bring forward some of these decisions about treatment which is the case with a large lung cancer screening trial Mike and his team are involved in. So lung cancer is uh, the third most common cause of cancer in the UK and it has the highest mortality. And unfortunately up here in the north of England and in Yorkshire in particular, we have a, an increased proportion of patients who are affected by it. And it's more common in uh, disadvantaged communities, 
screening has been sort of shown in some US trials to look like it can decrease uh, lung cancer mortality overall and uh, may prove beneficial to patients and you know our populations but there are still several outstanding issues that we need to address such as who to invite for screening and how to ensure that we get access to screening to the populations with the greatest clinical need who tend to live in some of the disadvantaged communities. With funding from a local charity called Yorkshire Cancer Research, Mike is leading a huge lung screening trial using electronic healthcare records to identify patients between the ages of 55 and 80 who've ever smoked. They are then invited along for screening in car parks. A few studies have sort of suggested that one of the biggest barriers to accessing screening services is transport. So uh, we're aiming to take uh, CT scanners uh, on vans out into supermarket car parks to some of the most disadvantaged uh, parts of the city to try to get some of these communities engaged with screening. So we, we want to see whether actually, you know, the additional investment in taking this equipment out into these communities who have this higher uh, prevalence of disease also increases the number of cancers that we detect. The volunteers are also having blood samples collected which will be used as part of the analysis as the study progresses. There's three different risk prediction algorithms that are currently in use, and our trial is looking to see which one of those three might be the most effective, but also potentially seeing if a combination of blood test results and additional data and artificial intelligence even can find even better ways of stratifying those patients into um, who we should and shouldn't invite for screening. And then once people are into the system and into the diagnostic pathway, we're hoping that this additional blood test information and additional data might also help us to identify who really needs to go on for treatment, how quickly they might need to have treatment, and also what sort of treatments might be best for them as individuals. The study has been running for just over 12 months, and so far they've recruited 3,000 volunteers. Within that population, we've identified uh, 40 cases of cancer. And so you're hoping to follow up as well the people who you haven't identified with cancer but might have a risk of developing it? So we've got a control population who uh, don't take part in uh, the actual screening intervention and we are just following them up according to sort of standard of care or natural history. And um, We're hoping that once we've conducted the analysis, we will see you know, whether there's a difference between people who undergo screening and people who don't undergo screening in terms of their lung cancer, and also overall mortality as well. So there's there's some other diseases such as uh, COPD that we're diagnosing within this population as well. While they haven't started applying AI to the data yet, they do plan to as more data comes in. But other studies on cancer diagnosis that Mike and his team are running are using AI and machine learning techniques to analyse blood samples and other medical data with what Mike says are very promising results. In a country like the UK, where there are increasing pressures on NHS budgets, one of the biggest drivers for this kind of research is resources and where to allocate them. So already in the UK, we spend around 8% of GDP on health, which equates to around £166 billion every year. Now, if you compare this to the US, where they spend around 17% of their GDP on health, it's pretty low. But uh, where the NHS does tend to punch above its weight is, is with regards to value, Now, we don't necessarily have the best health outcomes across all the board for for many disease areas, but we know that the NHS provides very good value for money in terms of how much we pay for each unit of health. And I think personalised medicine and precision medicine has a huge opportunity to further drive forward, not cost savings, but efficiency, which means that in the end, we can actually pay 
more money for more expensive treatments that would otherwise be unaffordable to the NHS because we know who they're going to work in and we can find those people within a population more effectively. Whereas at the moment, we typically need to take what's classed as a sort of a more one-size-fits-all approach where we have to give it to everybody, see who it works in, hope that it doesn't cause too much harm to the people it doesn't work in, and take it from there. And that has a lot of inefficiency associated with it. And if we can reduce the amount of inefficiency that we have in the way in which we manage patients through our pathways and in the treatments that we give them, I think we can get much better bang for our buck and much more health for every pound. There is a wider issue here about how to change the conversations people have with their GPs. At the moment in England, a GP appointment is just over nine minutes long on average. Enough time to talk about one, maybe two issues, but difficult for people with multiple overlapping health problems. Partly in order to find other ways to help these people, the past few decades have seen the gradual growth of something called social prescribing. The basic idea of social prescribing is that a GP will refer their patient to somebody, nowadays commonly referred to as a link worker, who can help connect them with a charity, community group or social enterprise that can help meet their needs. The link worker could help a patient with a chronic lung condition, which keeps flaring up because they're living in a flat that has damp, to find a way to improve it. Or the link worker could, say, refer an older patient who keeps coming to the GP because they're lacking wider social contact to organisations that run activities, such as gardening clubs or music groups or even yoga. So it's making those referrals to those activities, but also trying to identify uh, where, where do they need additional information, advice and guidance to address those wider problems. This is Chris Dason, Principal Research Fellow at Sheffield Hallam University, who has done research on social prescribing. It might be related to damp, it might be about somebody who's frail needing some aids and adaptations in the home to enable them to live independently. And sometimes they'll be able to make referrals to other voluntary organisations to do that work, but sometimes it, it's actually about helping an individual get a social care package in place so that the, the state can provide them with what, what they need. To Chris, social prescribing is central to the wider shift towards personalisation in healthcare. Instead of focusing on what's wrong with a person that can be cured or alleviated, he says it's based on their strengths, what they can do and what helps them feel positive. It also recognises that everybody's health and well-being are connected. If it's done properly, the GP should start speaking to them about how can he help them improve their wider kind of social life as well as just their immediate health concerns. And it's it's to stop saying, well, you know, here's a drug I can prescribe you or here's something that I can tell you to do and say, well, here's actually a personalised approach for you to try and make you feel better. Yeah, I don't think it's about saying don't give people the drugs because some people have, have serious long-term conditions that can only be managed through the drugs. It's about recognising that a lot of the side effects of living with those conditions are, are social and therefore there's a role for health services and health professionals to help people address some of those social needs and concerns as well. The UK has become a global leader in social prescribing and there are at least 100 schemes running in different parts of the country. Social prescribing has changed an awful lot historically from being very much a bottom-up enterprise, you know, literally social enterprises that were linked to one GP to becoming a model and a practice and approach that's actually gone across the UK and now internationally. This is Alison Fixon, Senior Lecturer in Psychology at the University of Westminster and part of the university's social prescribing network. Alison is a passionate believer in a more holistic, person-centred approach to healthcare. 
Well, I think the nice thing about the term social prescription is it suggests there's an alternative to a medical drug Mm -hmm. prescription. So I think that's probably where the term became adopted. The problem is, of course, we think about prescription as something which is suggested to somebody else that they should do. So we tend to think about more co-producing, come up with a plan together through a discussion of what people's needs are, you know, what's their story, their background, what are their capabilities, what's around in the area that they can access. All these things are going to be factored in. Since 2013, Chris Dason has helped evaluate a social prescribing model in Rotherham, a town in South Yorkshire. So I think Rotherham is is fairly typical of an area in the UK that's been affected by um, post-industrial decline, the decline of the steel industry. So lots of people living with long-term health problems, some quite stark health inequalities in the borough where the people in those areas that were reliant on the steel industry for, for employment have much poorer health than some of the more affluent areas. The people managing Rotherham's health system realised the potential burden that these issues have on health services, that they were reacting to people's health problems rather than trying to prevent them falling into ill health. In around 2012, Rotherham's NHS decided to get better organised in the way it worked with the local voluntary sector. Since then, Chris's research has identified three main benefits to the Rotherham Social Prescribing Service. The first is to the healthcare system itself. We've been tracking hospital episodes and accident and emergency attendances. We've identified a 6% reduction in emergency inpatient spells and a 13% reduction in accident and emergency attendances in the 12 months following that initial referral to social prescribing. And although it's difficult to identify what that means in terms of cashable savings to the NHS, it does indicate that the service will be broadly cost neutral after three years if those reductions are sustained. So people are are using acute services less and that will filter through into reductions in what the health service is having to spend on those individuals over that period. The reasons for this depend on each person's individual circumstances. But generally, Chris says that the social prescribing service has created a system of social support for people who didn't have it and who were having to rely instead on health services, such as hospitals, as their first port of call. The second benefit is to the patients themselves. So we see an immediate boost to their well-being. They get referred to social prescribing, immediately they feel happier, they're often less isolated, more socially connected. We also see that this benefit is greatest for those patients whose well-being was initially the lowest before their referral. So it's really affecting those who had low well-being most positively. We see lots of examples of people who were previously isolated from their communities going on to become volunteers, even starting to lead their own community groups and activities. And I think without social prescribing, those opportunities for them just wouldn't have been there. Chris gives the example of a woman from his research who he calls Louise. She suffers from a degenerative spinal disease and she has anxiety and low confidence linked to that. And before she was referred to social prescribing, she wasn't going out of the house. She was relying on her family to do her shopping, but she had a kind of a real desire to be independent again. She just needed the support to do that. So the social prescribing service supported her quite intensively, first of all, to attend a local craft group. It also helped her create a Facebook page through which she could sell her crafts because arts and crafts was something that was of real interest and importance to her. Within a few months, she was able to attend the group independently, but she was also, as part of that group, teaching younger members to do things like crochet. She also started going to craft fairs to, to sell her creations and was just kind of generally feeling more confident and independent. 
So whilst Louise's underlying spinal condition hasn't gone away and it, and it won't go away, what happened through social prescribing was that some of the worst side effects of that condition, including for her mental health, were lessened and her independence was kind of enhanced quite a lot. Social prescribing has been traditionally seen as something targeting older people and those with overlapping conditions, but has potential to help younger groups of people and those with mental health issues. In Rotherham, like elsewhere, social prescribing is already being embedded in community mental health services. Often what's happening for these patients is they're being discharged from community mental health services because the medical treatment has worked, but then quite quickly they're having a crisis in their mental health and they're being re-referred back into the service because the service is essentially providing them with the emotional and social support they need and once they've been discharged that support doesn't exist and so then social prescribing comes in it gives them a range of activities that are often peer-led that they can engage with. That means when they do get discharged, they have access to that peer-led support, but in a way that's much more around something they want to do rather than just kind of talking about their, their mental health. The third benefit Chris has identified in his research has been to the local community in Rotherham, which has been able to attract more funding. In the Rotherham project, we're seeing more than half a million pounds a year being reinvested in communities through social prescribing as grants. And what this does is make sure that the voluntary community sector provision is much more sustainable, it's much more plural, there's lots of choice. And it means that the service is able to respond to needs as they emerge. It also means that patients aren't having to wait for their referral to social prescribing to come through. There's no time lag. Under the Rotherham model, small grants are available to local community groups, something that doesn't always happen in social prescribing elsewhere. In fact... A number of areas have recently announced wholesale cuts to the health funding for local voluntary organisations, and that begs the question, how are they going to support social prescribing and receive referrals? In recent months, social prescribing has been getting a lot of political attention. In October 2019, the government announced a new social prescribing academy, including an ambition for every patient in the country to have access to social prescribing schemes on the NHS as readily as they do medical care. Part of the NHS long-term plan for England is to recruit more than 1,000 trained social prescribing link workers by 2020-2021 and to start standardising schemes across the country. While Chris feels positive about the political attention, he says it's unlikely that a one-size-fits-all model will work. I guess the concern I have in all of this is that the very voluntary and community organisations on whose work that policy seeks to build are going to be left behind. But I think it would be unrealistic to expect the NHS to make a a great big pot of money available for all local voluntary organisations. So these have to be locally made decisions about how does the health and care system locally want to support local voluntary and community organisations to support this agenda. These wider questions about the structure of the way social prescribing models work in some places is also something Alison Fixon is thinking about. I think it's a social issue as much as an individual issue that if we start to put responsibility back onto individuals, it's sometimes a way of neglecting public services, shafting everything onto people. And, and if they haven't got enough agency or they're too vulnerable to be able to either do that activity or to continue it. And if those services in the community are not being properly funded either, just relying on the goodwill of individuals, quite often retired individuals, sometimes individuals who aren't able to work themselves, then what you're going to end up is just with another system which is is not actually reducing health inequalities. So I think there are some really fundamental issues about social prescribing and this sort of personalised care model. She says there needs to be some sort of infrastructure in place 
a follow-up model so that somebody doesn't just have a few sessions and then feel abandoned. And the really good schemes, if you look at schemes like in Bromion Bow and Froome and so on, where they have very established social prescribing schemes, there is that continuity. There will be places because they're established. But that takes a lot of energy and funding and commitment to be able to do that. It feels like this future of personalised medicine is within reach. But at the same time, Gemma, it feels like the issue of money is a really big one and a big part of the discussion when it comes to making it possible. Definitely, Annabelle. You know, in a country like the UK that has the NHS, money and how to allocate resources most efficiently just really does drive the way decisions about our healthcare are made, whether you like it or not. At a time where the NHS feels constantly strapped for cash. It's kind of a bit depressing to to know that there's all of this amazing research being done and really cool ideas in the offing, but the financial realities mean that it may well not be possible for everyone anytime soon. Yeah, and I guess as there's just more and more research into the personalization of medicines and diets and, you know, these wider treatments we've been hearing about, the key is going to be making sure that it's not just the richest or the healthiest people who will benefit while the rest get left behind. Yep, definitely. Unfortunately, though, that is all that we've got time for this episode. And that is it for this Medicine Made For You series. If you've missed any of our previous episodes, you can find them on theconversation.com, along with more articles from academics about the personalisation of healthcare. Yeah, and thanks to the academics at the universities of Central Lancashire, Westminster, Leeds and Sheffield Hallam. And thanks to all the other academics we spoke to as background for this series who we weren't able to feature on the podcast. A huge thanks, as always, to the journalism department at City University of London for letting us use their studios. Medicine Made For You is produced and edited by me, Gemma Ware and Holly Squire with help from Clint Witchells. If you like The Ant Hill, please give us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you have any questions about the series, you can get in touch via email on podcast at theconversation.com or reach us on Twitter at Ant Hill Pod. We'll be back in a few weeks for a brand new series, an expert guide to conspiracy theories. Watch out for the trailer coming soon. Until then, bye. Bye.